All right. Uh, so, yep, we are now recording. Uh, today is, what, the 8th, right? The 8th of April? Yep, April 8th. April 8th. One week out from Easter Fool's Day. Yep, exactly. And uh, two weeks out from the, from I guess, Earth Day, right? Which is sort of like the single most, not not underrated, but sort of under-celebrated alleged holiday in the calendar. Oh, yeah, I completely forgot that was even a thing. Yeah, it's like... the. It, in environmentalism, you know, as as much as I uh, sympathize with its uh, aims, and uh, but it it's just it has been so bad at branding itself. Yeah, yeah, it has a serious PR problem. Yeah. So yeah, two weeks to Earth Day, two weeks to the uh, premiere of Westworld season two. Oh, really? Yep. Oh, and I've got something to be excited about. Yeah, exactly. Well, you got something to be excited about a few days before that. So Westworld, and we'll we'll get to that later in the. Uh, Later in the podcast, but um, so this is episode, I think, 10. I think we're up to 10 now of Mod Nerdery. Sure, let's go with it. Sure, 10, whatever it is. And uh, out there, dear audience, if you happen to know we're wrong, uh, you know, feel free to let us know. We very occasionally get your, uh, you know, missives, and we are appreciative of every one of them. But So if we're wrong about the episode, just let us know. And yeah, that, I'd be really excited about that correction, because it would mean that there is a listener who pays closer attention to this show than I do. Yes. Which is <laughs> deeply flattering. Exactly. So, um, as always, I am Peter Marino. I'm Rob Ames. Uh, and so we're here today, and we've got a few things on the calendar. We're going to actually um, end up talking uh, a lot about uh, your your specialization this week, uh, Rob, rather than mine. We spent a whole bunch of time in China and Asia last time. Yeah, so we're uh, moving slightly less east. Slightly less, exactly. Um, so we're going to start today. So uh, the crown prince of the House of Saud, the single wealthiest family in the history of the world, I think, at this point, it's pretty fair to say, um, and the only reigning absolute monarchs with a really big army at their disposal, uh, sent their crown prince on a tour of the U.S. He met Oprah. He did. Uh, he also met Lloyd Blankfein, a decidedly less charismatic figure. Yeah. Yeah. Are you... Arguably with greater influence on people's lives, but no one would know it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So uh, he also met, he met a lot of, he met Sergey Brin. I think he met with the president, but I mean, that's sort of less surprising given that, you know, he is the designated representative of a, you know, a, a formal a, a treaty security partner. Yeah. You know, him meeting with the president is actually the sort of least notable thing about his trip. It's everything else. It's absolutely, the, it's absolutely the normalist part of this entire endeavor. Exactly. You know, he, but yeah, he went to the, he went to New York, he went to California, he's going to Texas, he's going to Colorado. He dressed in like a normal business suit rather than the phobe or is that, is, yeah. that, is that what it's called? Yeah. yeah. And uh, it just sort of looked like a, a tall guy with a beard from, the Middle Eastern region, uh, but um, how, that, of course, is exactly the image they are trying to convey to obscure the fact that he is, in fact, the scion of an absolute monarchist dynasty. Yeah. 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 Um, and a big, a big part of this whole PR blitz was a concerted effort for him to brand himself as a modernizer. Exactly. And which is something that the American media has just been eating up yeah. for reasons I don't quite get. Yeah. Given how transparent it is. You know, I mean like neither you or I are, you know, uh, among the 
absolute, you know, most perspicacious people in the country, but even we can see that, like, it's clear what they're trying to do here. Yeah, like, no... I don't know how and why, other than sheer will to believe, people would believe that he is actually making a full-hearted effort at reform. Yeah. Reform as we would understand. Yeah. Right? Like, it's like, oh my God, he's going to let women drive. He's like, yeah, that's something that happened here 100 years ago, and you're getting excited about the fact. It, it happened at the same time cars arrived. It's not like cars arrived and were like, well, okay, only men can drive them. It's like, it was never even an issue anywhere else, and you're getting excited that they're, you know, implementing this there. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's just like so clear, and it's so clearly. Uh, an attempt to appeal to these like really basic cultural instincts uh, and interests that maybe American consumers do identify with quite closely, and by ex- apparently expanding them to women, he hopes to look like a wholesale modernizer or reformer. Um, the other example being that they're going to have a mixed gender movie theater in Saudi Arabia. Amazing, coming coming soon to a theater near you. Um, <laughs> But, like, sure, Americans like cars and movies, and Americans like being able to go, to use cars to go to the movies on dates. So, therefore, all of these three things hit exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, it, it hits us, like, right in the cultural sweet spot, I guess. But, clearly, this doesn't mean, you know, anything in the way of democratizing their political process. Sure. Or, you know, changing the... Completely bonkers distribution of wealth. Yeah. I mean, I, I would imagine, and this actually would probably be something that, that you know even more about. It's kind of a little bit of a tangent from where we want to go with this, but I would imagine that probably in the 60s and 70s, this was something that the Shah tried to do as well, to appeal to Western Western understanding of what sort of like modern culture stuff is while still keeping dramatic control of the political system. Yes. Yeah. Very, very much so. Like, he... There... Like, there was definitely a big thing among the upper class that they wanted Tehran to be, like, a hip city, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, which is fine if you can afford it, but it does nothing for, like, everyone outside of that city or even the people in the poorer sections of that city for whom, like, the ability to wear a miniskirt freely is so secondary to, like, you know, eating and stuff. <laughs> Which I mean, your 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 description of um, uh, major power center, ma- major political figure in Iran makes changes that matter only in Tehran reminds me of a bunch of the stuff you were talking about with the Qajars and their uh, abortive attempts at modernization. In the yeah, like the Shah too. the Shah Abdul Azim Railroad, which was the, the first attempt to build a railroad during the Qajar era, and it was pretty much just a train line for the entertainment of the Shah himself because it just ran from the heart of Tehran to a shrine named Shah Abdul Azim on its outskirts. And that was the entire route. And it was just because the Shah liked that one shrine and also liked newfangled gadgets. Uh, he was also, perhaps more interestingly, an early adopter of photography um, huh. and, and had an official court photographer before many European courts did. Huh. That's intriguing. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, this, this whole, you know, repeated refrain of, you know, the uh, modernizing autocrat who will come in and save the day and uh, transform society in a way that makes it comport more with what we would recognize as a society we like. But it, but that also, you know, okay, sure, first of all, he's almost certainly not going to do any of that stuff, uh, that the House of Saud is not going to be giving up any kind of legitimate political power at all, 
Right. Right. In any in any way. Plus, he's almost certainly made a bunch of enemies within the family. Well, the whole imprisonment and torture at the Ritz thing is definitely evidence of that. Yeah, uh, you know, he's uh, concentrating all the all the influence in himself. His father, I mean, like, I haven't heard much in the international media about his father, who, by the way, still formally, like, is the king right now. Yeah. I mean, ev- everything seems to be concentrated in, in this dude, who, by the way, is our age. Yeah, that is, that is nuts. I don't know how I could fail up that hard, but clearly I did something wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you decided to go like uh, get an education and be born in a liberal democratic society rather than uh, as the scion of a ruling house. You, you know, it, the getting born wrong is what undermines everyone's best efforts. I know, I know. It's such a shame. But okay, but getting getting to another one of his things and where we really want to go with this. So, in in addition to all of his other, you know, uh, you know, publicity blitz gobbledygook stuff, he gave an interview with uh, the Atlantic. Yeah, right. And in it, uh, do we want to quote it? Exactly? Yeah, why not? Well, why not read this dialogue out loud? Okay, you you, you have it there. Yeah, I'm okay. It up. So it was with uh, Jeffrey Goldberg, right? Yeah, of of the Atlantic, in which uh, MBS revealed himself to be. Well, we'll 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 read you the the text first, and then we'll figure out what what he was. Yeah. So Goldberg Goldberg has started questioning. Uh, Mohammed bin Salman about Wahhabism, uh, which which we'll we'll define in a moment. But yes, well, well, the, it would, it, defining it now would give away the punchline. Yes. So, I'll start with the MBS lines. Uh, first of all, this Wahhabism, please define it for us. We're not familiar with it. We don't know about it. We being Saudis, presumably, and maybe he's using the royal we. Yeah, being a royal. Yeah. What do you mean you don't know about it? Asks Goldberg. MBS. What is Wahhabism? Goldberg, and I think every reader, you're the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. You know what Wahhabism is. No one can define this Wahhabism, says MBS. It's a movement founded by Ibn Abdul Wahhab in the 1700s, very fundamentalist in nature, an austere Salafist-style interpretation. MBS cuts him off there. No one can define Wahhabism. There is no Wahhabism. We don't believe we have Wahhabism. We believe we have in Saudi Arabia, Sunni and Shiite. Okay. And that, I mean, like, the, the interview obviously continues, but, but this gets to the heart of the matter. So, would you, first of all, why don't you describe Wahhabism as you understand it as a scholar of this religion? Okay. So, Wahhabism is named after, uh, as Goldberg very rightly points out, Muhammad Ibn, Ibn, Ibn Abdul Wahhab, um, uh-huh. who was a... Saudi, well, it wasn't Saudi Arabia back then, but he was in Najd, which is the... Was it an Ottoman province? Yes, well, obviously the whole Sunni world might technically have been, you know, not the Mughals, but but, um, yeah, so it it was part of the Arabian Peninsula and therefore technically under Ottoman domain, Um, and Najd is the sort of part, the deserty part of Arabia where the... House of Saud was also originally based. So, like, more more towards the Sinai Peninsula or more towards, like, where Yemen is now? Uh, the northerner. Okay. The, the more northern part. Um, uh, basically, that's, like, that. that's why Jeddah's there. Okay, okay. Um, anyway, so he 
starts this reform movement in the um, late 1700s. Basically, uh, it's been called puritanical at times because it had in the sort of comparative religion the from a comparative religions perspective that that claim makes sense in light of like you know the English Puritans because just as much as they thought the the Church of England was you know sort of still too Catholic and therefore had lapsed into idolatry you know and mm-hmm. you know in, in that it still had like pictures of saints and cults of saints and mm-hmm. gold crosses etc. Um, so w- did he essentially say that um, Sunni Islam as practiced in the Ottoman Empire was too sort of Istanbul-centric and too royal? Not Istanbul-centric or too royal, um, rather that it, sim- it, it similarly was too idolatrous. Oh, okay. Speci- okay, all right. Like idolatrous. Um, so, yeah, so, uh, and so the, the two things that he – the basic two allegations he made against most of what he saw in the Islam of his day um, – were in Arabic what are called uh, shirk and bid'ah. Mm-hmm. So shirk means associating partners with God. Okay. Uh, which, you know, would, for example, be the cult, uh, like, cult of saints. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously there isn't an institutionalized sainthood in Islam the same way there is... Like in, canonization, like formal canonization. Yeah, there's not canon, formal canonization. But there is a practice of, uh, quite longstanding, of... Um, visiting the tombs of people who are regarded as especially holy and praying at them. Okay. And to Ibn Ab- uh, to Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, this looked too much like praying to the buried, to the people that were buried there. Okay. So he therefore said it was shirk or associating partners with God, basically, you know, saying that um, that you know holy people had some share of God's power or even some comparability to God, and therefore praying at their tombs or venerating them in any way was was worshiping them and w- and was therefore tantamount to polytheism. Okay, all right. So, yeah. Um, okay, so that's one claim he made. That's one claim. The other, the bid'ah thing, is basically that practices like the one I just mentioned, Saint Veneration, but a whole, a whole variety of things, uh, including a number of ways that scholarship was conducted, or what he deemed bid'ah, which is this Arabic word that means um, innovation, basically. Okay. But uh, but he meant that in a bad way. Yes, he meant that in a bad way. It's not like you know inventing the telescope innovation. It's basically the idea that in do that you're doing new stuff, and its newness is specifically um, a deviation from the patterns set forth by Muhammad and his companions, okay. who are taken to be the sort of you know the perfect uh, prototypes for what one should do in one's religious life. Right. And therefore, to use methods that they did not use, uh, for example, using like independent reasoning and legal 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 scholarship rather than hewing very closely to to um, just what we understand Muhammad's w- speech and conduct to have been, uh, is seen as a deviation. Okay, so it, it, would, he's sort of like a strict constructionist, I guess you could. Kind yes, of yes, an extremely s- strict constructionist. Um, okay. Do we, would would that include the, the Quran and the Hadith? Yes. Or, okay. Yeah. So basically, well, because basically, what happened in Sunni legal scholarship was that from the mid seven hundreds to the eleven hundreds is basically when the legal schools are sort of cementing, mm-hmm. and when the when when orthodoxy is getting defined within okay. Sunnism, and. This is around the same time that we're f- seeing the first 
official collections of Hadith getting established, or the sort of, what are called the Sahih collections, the collections that are regarded as trustworthy. Um, okay. And basically, each of these legal schools is trying to figure out sort of how, how do we make rules for good conduct in life. And they will all say that first and foremost, you go to the Quran and then the, the Hadith, the, mm-hmm. the Quran and then the, you know, the, the records of the Prophet Muhammad's deeds and sayings. And then there's sort of like, you know, questions about, and then, and then basically, you know, how do you next answer a question if those are silent? And that's where all these different legal schools um, differ. Mm-hmm. And they, like within Sunnism, they will regard themselves, they will regard one another, or at least by the 1100s, they had claimed, they had come to um, recognize one another as basically equally valid, even if they come to different conclusions. So the strictest of these, um, who I guess we could frame as the spiritual uh, predecessors of the Wahhabi, Wahhabis, in, in at least their legal reasoning, are the Hanbalis, who, this is the latest of the schools to develop, actually, but it's the most, uh, it develops out of um, Hadith scholars themselves. So basically, the previous schools were um, organized uh, by self-described scholars of the law, or theorists of the law. Okay. Like, they thought they were coming up with the law. The Hanbali school, named after uh, Ibn Hanbal, um, Ahmed ibn Hanbal, uh, were hadith scholars, which is to say people who viewed their main job as being sort of collecting and judging the accuracy of hadith. Okay. They, and then identifying mainly as scholars of hadith, they secondarily decided to try to, uh, I say they, I guess I mean ibn Hanbal, though I've got doubts about great men. Um, mm-hmm. th- they sort of came up with a legal system based on their role as Hadith scholars. So it's the most strictly insistent about the role of Hadith and um, the Quran as the sole sources of legal reasoning. Okay. And it was on this tradition that uh, Wahhab drew, Um, or at least uh, grew out of? Yeah, or is at least most readily comparable to. Okay. And so by by this time, so he lays down this. He he sees. So he's reactionary even by the standards of his day. Yes. Well, what he's really specifically re- reacting against is the way that uh, the Sunni schools of law, including Hanbalism, had become you know had become institutions, um, and the way that they had come to take their own discrete methods as authoritative. Rather than the text itself? Yes. Okay. Um, is there any analog, either to, to, to help me out in this conversation or our you know, dear, dear listeners out there, any analog in uh, the, the development of uh, you know, r- religious legal scholarship in the Christian tradition that someone could say is kind of like a rough comparison? Yeah. I mean, I guess we could compare this to... Uh, Ex, uh, some kind of ex, extremely uh, extremely strict Protestantism. Um, Calvinism, maybe? Not... Eh. So the, the comparison falls apart when we think about Calvinism as mainly being a theological tradition where it's talking about, like, you know, predestination, God's nature and stuff, whereas 
um, the Hanbali tradition and, as far as I understand, the Wahhabi tradition as well, um, are quite strictly anti-theological. They're against any speculative reasoning about God's nature. Or intent. Or, yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Um, but I would say in the sort of... Uh, <coughs> Like maybe uh, maybe there's a con- maybe it's comparable to Luther in that it's just sort of like back to the scripture. Okay. Uh, do away with the traditions of interpretation that have been built up within these particular privileged institutions, and say that it's just back to the literal text of scripture, and that is the only authoritative thing we've got. Okay. So and scripture here means both Quran and and and, and hadith. Okay. So that was that was the. The, the whole set of ideas put forward by Wahab. Yeah, well, yeah. and the, the other thing is that, like, he, he was very sort of outwardly focused and activist in trying to spread those ideas. So in that, there might be another comparison with Protestantism of this kind of, like, evangelical uh, expansionist. Sure, uh, except, I mean, although different from evangelical in that it was not spreading the Evangelion exactly. Yeah, it's, it's not, not about was... the good news. It's about just... Um, Here's the truth, and you should do it this way. Yeah, and get on board or pay this price. And the price was like, I mean, very specific, very specifically in the case of early Wahhabism, like early, like late 1700s, early 1800s. It's not just about like him saying scholars are wrong. It's like he basically um, builds this movement among the tribes of the Nejd, and then they, you know, expand out and um, you know start launching actual campaigns of you know, military campaigns. Based on it. Based on it. Uh, and, for example, they launch attacks on the Shiite shrine cities in Iraq. Um, and this is where the connection to the House of Saud comes in. Yes, in terms of the who exactly made up those those early tribal clients of Ibn Abdul Wahhab. Yeah. So, now, now we get to why it is that it is, at the absolute least, totally disingenuous and possibly uh, something totally different, about some, something worse than that, for uh, M- MBS to say, what is this Wahhabism? I don't know what it is. We don't have it in Saudi Arabia. This is not something we have, blah, blah, blah. So what was it that, what was the connection between the House of Saud and, and, and Wahhabism, and why is it relevant to their position today? So Muhammad Ibn, Ibn Abdul Wahhab himself uh, basically makes an alliance with the head of the, the then tribe of Saud, um, Muhammad bin Saud. And they were just one of a whole bunch of tribes at that time. Yes. Um, and he basically says, he basically says, like, hey, if we, you know, join forces, I, you know, I will, you know, make you a leader among men, in short. I, I, I will give you re- religious legitimacy. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's basically what it ends up being. Um, there ends, the, the arrangement ends up being that... Um, Muhammad, Muhammad Ibn Abdul Wahhab's vision of Islam becomes the uh, the ideology that uh, the Saudi the Saudi family uh, champions, mm-hmm. and it becomes the uh, the ideolo- ideological uh, legitimation for that family's power. Um, so there's this kind of cyclical thing where you know Wahhabism and Privilege and the privilege and power of the Saudi royal family itself support and inform one another. Yeah. Now, I mean, at at, at the time that uh, Ibn Al Saud is that the the the, the first what, what's the name of the first guy? Uh, 
Mohammed bin Saud. Mohammed bin Saud. You know, at, at his time, you know, they weren't the kings, right? I right. mean, they were they were just one of a bunch of tribes. And at this point, the guardian of the two holy mosques was the sultan, right, in Istanbul. Uh, I think it was actually the the Hashemite clan, the Hashemite dynasty. Oh, okay. who who um, were the at the time the sharifs of of uh, Mecca and Medina. Okay, but that 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 would have been some sort of um, subsidiary position to the Ottoman Sultan. Yes, at least in theory, they served at the pleasure of the of the court. And okay, but but I mean, like I, I guess what I'm getting at here is that like at the time that the Sauds signed up for this Wahhabist thing, like this was part of their plan for getting power, not that they already had it. Right. It was about them sort of expanding their influence among the tribes of the Arabian Peninsula, and specifically like the less populated parts of it. Mm-hmm. And because when, when was it that the, the Saudis firmly like established their grip on the Arabian Peninsula? Was it immediately after the fall of the Ottoman Empire? Or was it... Or was yeah, there so basically what happened was, um, you know, so they, they spent about a little over a century sort of building loyalty, getting support within, within the tribes of the Nejd. Um, and then... The then World War One happens, mm-hmm. and if you've seen T. E. Lawrence, seen Lawrence of Arabia, you know that like T. E. Lawrence is involved in the the Arab Revolt, which is a, a revolt of people in the Arabic Arabian Peninsula and the Levant against the Ottoman Empire. Yeah, which was uh, supported by the Brits and the Western powers because the Ottomans sided with the Central Powers. Right. Um, what that ends up doing, though, is. Uh, basically, it, the the Saudis sort of participate um, and get get catapulted to success after after World War One and after the revolt, when um, basically the the aforementioned Hashemite dynasty, mm-hmm. the um, who still ruled Jordan, right? Yes, who still ruled Jordan, um, are sort of displaced, and the British are like, yeah, sorry, it's it's not your time in the sun anymore, at least not in not in Ar- Arabia. Uh, Arabia proper, uh, but we'll set you up in our new mandates in uh, Transjordan and Iraq, yeah. and so that's how we get the you know the the ruling family we have in Jordan today, yeah. um, and then that's really, and that was also the king of Iraq for and that was the king of Iraq until fifty eight when the revolution happened there. Yeah, but. But through 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 a series of stuff that we don't have to get into right now, um, the, the the British and I guess sort of the the Americans because they didn't really have an opinion on the matter one way or another in the nineteen and twenty twenty one, yeah, end up coming down on the side of the the House of Saud yeah, in the House of Saud in the Arabian Peninsula proper, which is how Arabia becomes Saudi Arabia, yeah, and then it's around ten ish years after that in the very early thirties that you have. The foundation of Saudi Aramco. Yeah, and the beginning of the absolutely immense, incalculable wealth of same house. Exactly, because... Because right? at the time they were supported, they were just some, you know, desert nomads who rode around on horses and camels and slashed at stuff and sometimes shot at stuff and, like, who cares who rules this vast expanse of desert because who needs it? Right. And it turns out that the answer is we do because there is just an ocean of money under it. hmm Now... All this gets back to MBS and his talking about the fact that we don't know what Wahhabism is in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. So basically the thing is, as long as there's been a house of, of Saud worth note, noting, like who's ever, who's m- mattered in any capacity 
on the world stage, on the world stage, or even in the regional stage, it's been in part as a result of their relationship to Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahab and his followers. Yeah, there is there 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 is no way to talk about the one without talking about the other. Right, and so there are a couple different ways we can interpret MBS's claims. Yeah, one which would be that he's just sort of uh, parroting in perhaps. a bit of a dumbed-down way, a very common claim that people in the Sunni world make today, mm-hmm. which is that there's not really any such thing as Wahhabism, there's just doing Sunnism, right? Um, the idea being that, you know, that, wh- that Wahhabism is, so, is, at this point, such a monopolistic influence in, the, in at least certain sectors of the Sunni world that people within those sectors of the Sunni world will just say... There's no, there's no Wahhabism. This is just real Islam. Yeah, it's sort of like a Catholic saying. There's no Catholic Church and the rest of it. It's only there is only the one true Church. Right. That that's it. Now, that it's possible that that's what he means. Um, that would probably be a distinction that would be entirely lost on pretty much anybody in the right in in his American audience, which right. maybe he cares about, maybe he doesn't, maybe he knows, maybe he doesn't. But yeah, so. That, that's one possibility. That's that, one possibility. Um, the other is that as part of trying to sell his role as a reformer, a modernizer, a partner against terrorism, um, he's now trying to say that the Saudi royal family is against, Wahhab, is, is, is against Wahhabism or is at least fully dissociated from it and can't be held responsible for anything Wahhabis have ever done. Exactly, because, I mean, of, of all the different uh, sort of uh, strains within Islam, Wahhabism. I, w- would you say fairly that it's, if not the most extreme, certainly among the most extreme, and of of those who would be interested in committing terrorism in the name of Islam, it, chances are they come from in uh, a Wahhabist school of thinking rather than some other ones. Right. So I th- well, so I think that you know the the scholarship on how exactly Muslims come to commit what we in the West would call terrorism is evolving. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it, a lot of the recent research that I find particularly compelling, like stuff by Olivier Roy, for example, is, has come to question the idea that it is explicitly religious um, thinking that leads people to terrorism. In, in any way, uh, at all. Right. Yeah, okay. Um, that being said, short answer is that in as much as a specific strand of Islam is more similar to what, if not the actual foot soldiers of terror uh, of various terrorist groups would say, what the religious scholars justifying those groups' conducts would say sounds more like Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab than anyone else. Okay. And especially in, you know, if you look at some something like uh, Daesh, ISIS, what we call in the West, ISIS, um, and, and Al-Qaeda, in particular, for example, their their viciousness against Shiism is, I think, an obvious outgrowth of Wahhabism, and it's like really strict sectarianism and its readiness to brand other Muslims unbelievers and its particular revulsion for Shiism. Okay. Um, what I was talking about when I talked about the early Wahhabi raids on shrine cities in Iraq. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the tombs of a number of uh, Shiite imams are buried in in Iraq. Okay. And that's and that's something that just uh, what Wahhabis can't stand. 
Right. Okay. Okay. So M- M- MBS may be, you know, acknowledging that, uh, you know, we in the West would associate the, the more extreme versions of Islam with what we sort of rule of thumb-ish characterize as Islamist terrorism. Right, yeah. and saying, ah, oh, yeah, that Wahhabism stuff, that's not us. Like, we don't know what that is. That's just... Right. Uh, okay, so option one, he's just saying, no, that's the true church. Option two, he's trying to distance himself from it. Option three, I would say, is he's just being deeply disingenuous. Yeah. He's just, just lying through his teeth, which I guess is sort of like a corollary to, to number two. To number two, yeah. yeah. And then option three, really, because option two is sort of like option two and a half, or option three is option two and a yeah, half. Yeah, so there, let's say that the, the previous two we discussed were options 2A and 2B. Yeah, and then option three is he just doesn't get it. Like, he's just so ill-informed about his own history that he wouldn't, he perhaps doesn't even understand all the stuff that led to the conclusions that I was talking about in option one. Yeah. And he just he just doesn't know who Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab was. Entirely possible he's never really read. It's entirely possible that you may be far better informed on the nature of the, the, the history of the House of Saud than he is. It's, I mean, like, is it likely? I don't know. I'm not really yeah. in a position to judge, but, I mean, like, the, the fact that he said this, I mean, there's only a few ways to uh, <laughs> interpret what that means, and one of them is he just doesn't know. Yeah, and I mean, like... My feeling is that he's like a mafioso saying my, – my reading of the quote was that he was like a mafioso saying there's no such thing as the mafia. Yes, I, I, I agree with you. I, I think that that's a far more likely option than, than, than he's actually just ill-informed or dumb uh, because uh, being, being dissembling in – you know, like him lying to Jeffrey Goldberg in an interview in The Atlantic carries exactly zero uh, you know, long-term consequences for him. Yeah. Right? It is – it is a totally consequence-free lie, which is why you would do it. Right, right. You know, the two of us talking to each other about the fact that he's a jerk means nothing <laughs> to him. Yeah. Uh, except to the extent that, you know, you out there, our dear listeners, might, you know, help us uh, start a political movement to uh, dethrone the House of Saud, then, then this will have consequences. But the uh, chances of that are, I'd say, uh, remote, as much as we do adore you out there. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, so, so, yeah. Um, now, now, now you've had yourself a, a good uh, a course of uh, you know what happened in the Islamic world in the late 18th, early 19th century, but you know the Islamic world it's seen from the the perspective of the West is you know as you know Edward Said said you know it's like we, we like to orientalize and we like to uh, you know see it as um, non changing and uh, ever present and just solid and uh, mysterious and inaccessible, but it's been just as, um, you know, dynamic and changing and full of upheaval and blah, 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 as everywhere else in the world. Yeah. And um, there was, there's, there's a period of time in, when was it, the 13th century, 12th century? Uh, where the, the Mongol. Oh, yeah, so the Mongol. Uh, that, yes. Uh, 13th century. The 13th century, right? That we really have so little uh, appreciation for or, or understanding of because like the entire Islamic world got totally thrown on its head by the by the Mongol conquests. Oh yeah, this this the the rivers of Baghdad ran black with ink from the libraries. From the libraries, you know. And we in the West also really 
don't know, uh, most of us, or aren't, aren't sort of ever present with the knowledge of how much we have the, the Mongols to thank for uh, Europe's eventual dominance of the world, because they sort of conquered everywhere and then didn't quite make it all the way to Europe. Right. <laughs> if, if, if they had, they, that they sort of ran roughshod over everybody else and then stopped right short of... Yeah, I had to go home for a funeral. Yes, that was exactly it. It was entirely contingent. Yeah. And then while, while they were home, something else. But anyway, so the, the reason that we bring this up is, you know, in, in talking about, you know, we're, we're going to get into some more detail about what actually happened during the Mongol conquests. But, you know, the, there was the, the contingency of why Wahhabism even rose to the point of power that it has now and sort of the singular dominance over a large chunk of the Islamic world that it possesses. Yeah, which was a series of a lot of, you know, highly unlikely things in themselves all happening in sequence. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, then there was also the the sort of counterfactual of what what the Islamic world was up to before the uh, before the Mongols got there and what got cut short. Right. Yeah. So um, we're gonna take a quick break and be right back. All right. So we're we're, we're back. I realized you guys uh, didn't. Uh, Notice that because it was just pause and then start again. But um, in any event, here we are. We're we're we're, we're back. And so yeah, the, the the Mongol conquests, 13th century, right? The Mongols yeah. spread out from Mongolia and went pretty much everywhere in Eurasia. Yeah, shy of again Western Europe, and we'll get to why that happened. But uh, yeah, so you you were saying there there was the the one great horde originally. Yeah, and then it split four ways. Um, as a way of, I, I forget what that seg, that succession system is when it's like all the brothers get a piece. Yeah, yeah. There, 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 there is a name for it, and we don't know it off the top of our heads. I but. haven't played Crusader Kings recently enough to remember. <laughs> well, they gave it away this past week for 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 free on Steam. Really? I I had never had Crusader Kings two before, and it was just being given away. Yeah, I I got Crusader Kings two. At a deep, deep discount one time when I was watching Steam closely enough to, to grab it, but I never got around to getting the expansions. Um, so that's how they get you downloadable content. But okay, yeah. <laughs> um, so succession systems where every brother gets a piece, and um, but first they they expanded outward from from Mongolia and horse lords that were way better at uh, their horse riding than the other people were at defending against it, and yeah. really ran roughshod over. Lots of different dynasties. Yeah. Pretty much anyone they encountered. Yeah. Uh, it, I, I, I don't know what kind of actual legitimate academic historical evidence is available for this, but there's the, the widely uh, spread meme anyway that uh, uh, Genghis Khan was responsible for the deaths of enough people that stuff reforested and cooled the planet and some global, uh, climate change, global cooling climate change as a consequence of his conquests. Yeah, and then there's like the other... There's like the... Genetic thing that everyone is like, the, all, like everyone's, everyone is a close enough cousin to one another, or everyone is as close a cousin to one another in terms of living people today as they are, just because of the sheer amount of genetic material that the Mongols spread. Uriwar. Yeah, but what we're going to talk about is specifically what happened with the Mongol conquest in the what we would now call Mina, right? The yeah. Middle East or at least the the, the, the Levant, really, right? Like uh, the the Persian Empire and then the the Arabian part. Yeah, well, so yeah, I mean it's really um, greater historical greater Persia and then central and south Asia. Um, well, I mean I guess that that is all pretty much historical. Well, 
this would be too much anti-baseball, but it's like, yeah, there's historical greater Persia in terms of what, what before Islam was the Persian Empire, and then there's the sort of subsequent uh, medieval and early, early modern Persianate worlds of Central Asia and South Asia. Yeah. Which, I mean, we're all sort of united by, like, Persian language and, and uh, Persian aesthetics, Persian cultural values. Oh, uh, Bengal to Vienna thing. Yeah, um, yeah, the story goes that you could get from... Uh, it, up through the 1800s, you could get from India all the way up to Vienna just speaking Persian, just because of sort of, one, Persian being a la- language of high culture in enough places, but then also there being a Persephone diaspora throughout the Ottoman Empire and, and into Europe. Yeah. Um, but, so at, at that time, the, the, the Mongol conquest came, came through. They, they'd been spreading across well, originally East Asia and then Central Asia, and now they get to... Persian Empire and the Islamic world. Yeah. And so, yeah, I don't, they don't exactly reach the Levant proper. Um, like, they don't, I don't think their forces sweep through Iraq or even bother sweeping through Iraq into, say, like what we would call today Lebanon or Syria. Yeah. But they do make it to Baghdad. But they do make it to Baghdad and overthrow the Abbasids. Which is big deal. Yeah. Uh, it's the first time a caliph's been like straight up overthrown. In 500 years. Yeah. And by someone who not only is uh, not Muslim, is not even monotheist. It's not even like being overthrown by the Christians who are trying to retake the Holy Land or something. It's just this totally non, non-Muslim non force from a totally different part of the world. Yeah. Um, they set, sack the city. Um, Destroy the library. Yeah. Which is... Quite it, it, so the the the, the Beit, Beit al Hikmah that they is is that what they destroy or is that yeah or at least its successor Beit al Hikmah tech like proper having been a much earlier Abbasid project but yeah the house house of knowledge wisdom what's the best way to oh uh, wisdom 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 yeah. so at that point right the not only had there not been a, a caliph directly overthrown in like pretty much since the the dawn of Islam yeah. right it was well this, no so basically what happened was there. Um, there were the Umayyads who ruled from 660s to 750, and then the Abbasids overthrew them. Um, but then it's been the Abbasids. But then the Abbasids had been had been uh, at least in name been God's shadow on earth from then on, from from 750 on. Um, and what what really happened was that by the 900s, the Actual govern work of governing the empire um, was performed by a number of different local monarchs who were just sort of like ruling in the name of the caliph in Baghdad. Yeah, um, which was hardly a unique proposition for the the you know late antiquity, early medieval. Like I don't know whatever you want to call that period. You know that that, that was hardly unique to them at that period of time in global yeah. history. Yeah, uh, but. There was still a a sort of a sense of formal continuity and formal legitimacy continuity that that had existed, and the all all the particular you know cultural and religious uh, you know stability that came with a single dynasty for that long. Yeah, yeah, which all came to an end with the overthrow of the Abbasids by the Mongols. Yeah. But but it was also so when when they overthrew them, like this was pretty much at, at the edge of their 
of their conquest before they all had to return home for, as you said, a funeral. Yeah. Right. Um, what was it that they were interested in putting in place afterward? And what was what was the nature of the power vacuum that that opened up after that? Well, so we don't have a great sense of what their positive project would have been if their conquest had been un- uninterrupted. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically what it looks like is that after the sex- succession crisis was more or less revolved and each, each different Mongol brother and his horde got their own respective quarter empire, mm-hmm. um, it seems pretty consistent that depending on which sort of quarter of Eurasia you were inheriting, your dynasty mainly cultivated legitimacy by adopting and patronizing local culture rather than trying to impose Mongolian cultural ideals upon it. Except when it comes to stuff like succession. When it comes to actual like uh, succession, formal politics, then you maintain a little more of the sort of tribal horse lord vibe, which you know leads to a number of other inconveniently decided successions where like one strong man dies and then like every son's competing against every other son. Yeah. Which is sort of what the, the, the Ottomans also had for quite a while. Yes. Well, until they sort of resolved it by saying, oh, we're just going to have a gerontocracy and it'll just go from one brother to another. Yeah. But, but, but yeah. Well, and the Ottomans had that because they were also originally, Turkic peoples were originally Central Asian. Yeah. What we call today Turkey isn't the homeland of people who speak Turkic languages. Yeah. It, that is way far to the north and east of, of modern day Turkey. Yeah, more around the... The much closer to much closer to Anatolia, much, not much closer to Mongolia. Yeah, actually. than 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 Anatolia. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But uh, so, yeah. So like one 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 Mongolian got one one uh, you know brother got China. Yeah, which was the Yuan Dynasty, and you know as you described, that's more or less the way they operated. Yeah, right. They they still wore Mongolian dress as as the Yuan emperors, but you know they essentially kept in place the entire uh, you know Confucian hierarchy. That that exist, you know, in the entire bureaucracy, and in fact, it imposed fewer uh, cultural changes on the elite than, say, the Qing did uh, about you know four hundred years later. Right, right. But um, but the, the 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 main point of this is is talking about um, you know what was it that happened in in the Middle East, North Africa region, and with the you know the fracturing that happened as a result of the fall of the Abbasids, yeah. and how that you know played into. The rise of all the other dynasties that 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 happened, and indeed how, in some ways, that fracturing and uh, change in the locus of power, um, in some ways, you know, paved the way for the Crusades, or at least allowed the Europeans to be more successful in the Crusades than they might have been. Well, I have to quibble with you there, okay. because the the Crusades were basically were basically already more or less done by the time of the Mongol conquests. Um, the first Crusade was launched in the late ten hundreds. Yeah, yeah, ten ninety nine, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and then they persisted throughout the 1100s. The last noteworthy one was really 1204. Um, and that was mostly against Constantinople rather than the... Yes, and that was when the Crusaders got bored and just decided to sack Constantinople rather than pushing on to Jerusalem and trying to capture it from the Saracen. Yeah, which actually probably did a great deal to uh, prepare Constantinople for conquest by the... Uh, by the the Ottomans 250 years later. Yes, well, what it did was that it uh, it, it shattered the Byzantine Empire's bureaucracy and its ability to, um, yeah, obviously, they lost their imperial core. So, um, you know, they spent, the, and then they had to, once the Crusaders left Constantinople, they had to spend a lot of time trying to rebuild and, like, sort of get a 
a set of strong institutions back. And by that time, there were already, you know, Turkic tribes sweeping all throughout the the eastern Mediterranean. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, that's... You, you already had, for example, the Saljuks being the power behind the throne in the Abbasid court um, mm-hmm. by the by the early 1100s, late 1000s. Oh, so, so even antedating the... Yeah. The, the, well, the and that's the thing. Countries. Like, one of the things about the Crusades is that... Uh, they, especially by the 1200s, it was kind of for, for, there wasn't a, there wasn't a comparable, like, if we imagine, if we imagine the Crusades to be all of Christendom uniting to take back the Holy Land. If we imagine it. If we imagine that, if we imagine it that way, the Muslim world's response was not a similarly united effort to retake Al-Quds, Jerusalem, Mm -hmm. from, from the Franks. Which is what they called them. Which is what they called Europeans, Franks. They, they called, every, in Arabic, it's Ferenc. It, it's okay. Ferenc. But yeah, like, uh, there wasn't a similar united effort. One, because the Muslim world was already disunited at the time of the First Crusade. Um, the Fatimids, being a Shiite dynasty, uh, were already ruling Egypt and most of North Africa and a lot of the, the Levant. Um, and then you already had Turkic tribes uh, sort of being the power behind the throne in the Abbasid heartland. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you had smaller Persianate courts in the east uh, ruling uh, in, the, in the name of the Abbasids, but mostly just fa- fashioning a sort of identity as Shah for themselves. And, and so they just had to pay some sort of like nominal obeisance to the, yeah. to, to the throne here Yeah, and, and like make sure that the, um, the Abbasid caliph's name was read during the Friday sermon, stuff like that. Um, so there was already considerable disunity. More than that, the thing was that it was like, yeah, sure, the Franks took Jerusalem, but we already have Central Asians breathing down our neck. Like, you know, why would we let these smelly people from the uncivilized Northwest, like, distract us from the fact that there is an actual steamroller coming. Like a, a legit threat. Uh, yeah, coming for our entire civilization to the, from the East. Did, did the Islamic world at the time of the Crusades value Jerusalem to the extent that Christendom did? Uh, they valued it, but probably not to the same extent that Christendom did. Um, it's usually said that Jerusalem's the third holiest city in Islam. After, after Mecca and Medina. After Mecca and Medina. Okay. Um, and yeah, well, so so Jerusalem matters in Islam mainly. Uh, well, Jesus is Jesus isn't small potatoes in Islam, but um, the other big thing that happens in Jerusalem is that Muhammad visit visits it in this uh, supposed this like miraculous night journey. Um, where oh, like he goes from from Medina. Yeah, to he's Jerusalem. Ca- he's carried from Mecca to oh. Jerusalem on the back of a winged steed, and then from Jerusalem is taken up to meet God. Okay, and that is that like it for him, or then does he come back? Like, what is it? Oh no, that's not the story of his death. That's just something that happens one night. Oh, one one night. Yeah, it's one called night. the Isra al Miraj. Okay, oh, mi- Miraj, from which we get the English word mirage. I haven't done I I haven't done a- any actual etymological research on that. What I does Miraj so. mean in in Arabic? Uh, ascent, I think, because hmm. it's like his ascent to heaven. Okay, yeah, I. I you, Something tells me probably not. Yeah. Yeah. 
but in any event, um, we're we're we're, well, we're either way, and it, even if it was a rid, if even if it might have some, the English Mirage might have some faint original connection to Arabic. It's very obviously more immediately translated by uh, transmitted through the French because that like A G E N. Yeah, exactly. So maybe maybe like Arabic into the French and then the French into the English from there. Possibly. Yeah. But um, so. Mongol conquests, I got that. But all of this connects to like the, the, the final thing we're going to talk about. So you've spent a whole bunch of years studying the Arabic language, the Persian language, Islam, uh, theology around Islam, the history of this region, right? And you are in, what, 12 days' time, right? Oh, uh, yeah. From, from now, 12 days. Yeah, ooh, that's soon. Yep. Oh, I'm not ready for that. Uh, going to uh, defend your doctorate. Yeah. Or, or defend your dissertation. Like yes. you don't, you don't, you don't defend the doctorate. You defend the dissertation and are granted a doctorate, doctorate yeah. for for successful defense. And so that sort of brings us to this. And, and this will probably be the therefore the last uh, episode of Mod Nerdery that you will record as a not uh, of Rob Ames food <laughs> candidate. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Inshallah, from here on out, it's going to be Doctor Rob. Doctor Rob. Uh, yeah. So you'll you'll be able to announce yourself, but. Um, what this lets us uh, sort of get into, which is per- perhaps a little um, depressing to for, for you to think about this, but I'm, I'm sure you've been just sort of suffused with this knowledge for all of the years of, of your research. Yes. Uh, it's the it's sort of terrible, terrible, terrible state of the U.S. academic job market. It's cold out there. It, yeah. Academic job market is just awful. And this has been remarked upon by everyone from currently tenure track professors to um, you know people uh, younger academics in the ever expanding world of quitlit. Yeah, the, it's insane to me that this is an actual genre of writing, at least on the internet. Like, quitlit is a specific describes a specific genre of personal writing where it is humanities PhDs explaining how and at what point and why they gave up hope of ever getting a tenure-track job and chose to take something outside of academia instead. Yeah. Yeah. and It's it, a whole genre. Yeah. And it's, and, it's, and it's not small. Yeah, and I don't mean like, you know, an obscure genre in the way that, like, you might say musically that, like, glitchcore is a genre of music. No, it's not like, it's not like there are three albums or something. Like, this is, like, a constantly expanding list of essays. And because they are written by people in the humanities who have been trained at the highest level possible for years in how to write and how to make your point, they're usually quite good, as, yeah. as, as in, you know, just like well-written. Uh, I mean, it's it's among the sort of best category of personal essays that, that I mean, because it's, it's wrestling with a very serious topic and it's wrestling with it by someone who has dedicated pretty much at that point his or her entire adult life to the life of the mind. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's it's a little depressing that they're so good. And, of course, it's very revealing that they're so good because, like, this is how well-trained these people are right. In, right. In, in this stuff. And the fact that... Now, this obviously uh, speaks to a number of different uh, problems in the American higher education system, and we're not going to be the first people to, to mention any of them. Like, one, of course, you know, the, the absolute monoculture of the, the way... Uh, PhDs, especially at the highest levels, are are trained, which is that like the only respectable, important thing for you to do with this degree is to get a tenure track job, right? Like, yeah, that there's no other life worth pursuing, right? And like, if you want to figure out alternatives, 
you need to do it on your own. Like you might, if you have, if you're at, at a sufficiently, uh, f- you know, funded and then also supportive institution, you might have an office of career services with someone who can actually, as their own job, tell you about alternatives for a PhD in your field. But in terms of your actual department and stuff, there is really, in my experience, not just personally, but in terms of like talking to my colleagues, stuff like that, there is really not a culture of supporting you or guiding you through the process of considering and finding alternatives. Yeah, and like uh, far, far be it, like if you come in with the idea that it, you're not going to pursue a tenure, like it would be hard to, like, because they ask you, right? Yeah. And as, like, as, 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 as someone who recently got into a PhD program, right, they ask you in your essay, what do you want to do with this thing? Yeah, and I don't think they would, like, for humanities or social scientists, I do not think they would take an application seriously if the answer was anything other than teach. Yeah, it's like, I want to stay in the academy, and I think it's important to transmit this stuff, and I want to work on research and conference, and yeah. uh, you know you're an academic when conference is a verb, right? And But, uh, yeah, it's just, it's it's not it's not taken seriously. Yeah, well, and I, I will say that this is something that the hard sciences seem to do a little bit better at, where, I mean, I guess maybe it's just because the, the skills are so much more immediately and obviously transferable, but I think that there is... Yeah. Um, it's it's a little easier to guide someone from bench research in a university lab to bench research in a private lab, whereas like or a government lab or, or a government lab. Yeah. Whereas like the thing is like if you're doing a humanities PhD, the co- the f- most of the coaching you'll get in your first couple meetings as like someone going to career services and being like, hey, I don't think I'm going to be able to get a tenure track job. Please help me. I'm scared to death of being unemployed. Um, the the coaching you'll get there for the first you know couple meetings or whatever is really just figuring out what your what skills you have that you can sell to a private institution whereas you know if you if you if you're used to doing bench research you know there's pharma there is any other there's any number sure. of people. if you're if you're if you're a chemist you can go work for BASF yeah. if you're a physicist well, I mean, you can go work for almost anybody because you know complex math, and there's yeah. lots of people who need complex math. Maybe it's not physics. Maybe it won't be quite as intellectually stimulating yeah. as your research, but lots of people need complex math. If you're a mathematician, yeah, sure, same. If you're a biologist, yeah, you can go work for, uh, you know, USGS probably, or you know, or, yeah, or CDC, or or any number of international institutions yeah. that that need scientists, or like you know, um, again, pharma probably. Yeah, but you know, if you're a, a student of 19th century Mexican literature. It, it, you know, okay, you know Spanish. Yeah. Like, okay, like, that has yeah. value, but, like, what do you want to do with it? Yeah, but then there's, like, but then there's, like, a whole conversation about, like, figuring out how to sell your research skills and your writing skills and your critical thinking skills and your presentation skills. Which, like, but again, the, the Academy does not take these things nearly seriously enough, which is why there's such a glut of, uh, you know, unemployed or underemployed PhDs. Yeah. Well, another big thing that you don't get training in is how to say, how to make clear that, like, what you do as a researcher or writer is transferable, right? Like, which, you know, can lead to kind of awkward and probably, frankly, sad cover letters where those of us who do think hard enough to try to sell those things explicitly end up being like, oh, well, obviously, like, I can, you know, I can present and I had no verbal communication because, like, I 
yeah. have to present my papers all the I, time. Yeah. yeah, I teach and I go to conferences and I present. I like I present this stuff. Mm-hmm. Like that's what I do. But um, I think that there's. I think that for a lot of people, it's very difficult to just think of those things as skills that are separate from the content of one's research. And there's really not sufficient training in specifically thinking and selling those things as distinct from your particular research projects. Yep. And, uh, and of course, because uh, academia is such, uh, and this is going to be the second time in this podcast I've used this word, but because academia is such a gerontocracy, you know, so many of the, of, of, of the people in a position of influence to, to change any of this stuff you know, they a, came up through the PhD system when getting a tenure track job was pretty much a guarantee when, when you right. had a PhD. And they're just, you know, there's an amount that they can sympathize, but they absolutely cannot empathize. Yeah, yeah. And it just, like, they are deeply, deeply ill-suited to helping these people. And, I mean, tenure has a lot of value. And I'm not necessarily, like, we, we, we can spend a whole other episode questioning whether the tenure system itself makes sense anymore and blah, blah, blah. I don't think it's necessary to do that right now and right here. I am somewhat... And, and I'm not going to come out against tenure because the last thing the world needs is more precarious labor. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, the tenure system has value, but, you know, one of the downsides of it is that, you know, the, the, the people who have been in it for a very long time just are deeply uh, unaware on any kind of immediate important level of the, the nature of the, the job market 40 years after they entered it. Right. Yeah, yeah. That that is really what it comes down to. Um, and then you know, like when you try to talk to people that have, you know, the lucky few who have, you know, who are youngish mm-hmm. and have landed tenure track jobs. A lot of the time, the best advice they can give you is just to like have a strong stomach and keep at it because I think for a lot of them, it still feels like one. Obviously. They don't have tenure yet, so there's they they are still kind of precarious in their own way, and uh-huh. they're almost always overworked. Still, yep. yep, yep, yep. Which is again an entirely separate conversation. Um, and of course, you don't want to talk too much shit, lest you you know endanger your own you know ability yep. to get tenure successfully. And and of course, the the, the more self aware of them know that it was in fact a crapshoot, right? And that yeah. they 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 were not actually. A hundred times better qualified than guy number two. In yeah, fact, which is exactly why so much of their best advice is just have a strong stomach because they, you know, will often themselves know that like some of it was blind luck and some of it was just being willing to keep clicking submit for literal years on end. Yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, they're they're, they're like uh, our our good friend Phil, who's obviously been on the podcast, was a central part of the podcast a year ago, right? You know, he's been out of his PhD now almost three years. And he's said, like, this is probably going to be the last year that he stays in the job market because at this point his, you know, work is so stale that uh, it's, you know, he hasn't been conferencing in his field. Yeah. He's been working with people who publish, but he's not, he hasn't been a primary investigator on any major research project. And it's just like, that's it. Like, you've got, like, four years. Yeah. Well, and and also, like, this is, this is admittedly more of an idiosyncratic reflection on my part, and I, it, it is perhaps not a commentary on the job market itself. But one thing that I find really, really weird is, like, when you talk to people within the academy, you know, when you're at my stage where you're about to finish your PhD and stuff, they will often ask, are you on the job market yet? Are you going on the job market? As if there's, like, huh. 
there's a special ceremony where you in, like you have like a coming out party or something or a debutante ball and you announce yourself to the job market. I am on the job market. I'm declaring myself to be on the job market and I will stay on this job market for as long as it takes. And that that's usually like three years if you're lucky. Um, whereas for me, I've never understood what entering the job market means separate from actually just applying to things. Yeah. Yeah, I'm... I'm uh, that's perplexing people, to me as well. But people within the academy talk talk about talk about it as if entry into the job market is its own special ritual. And huh. when they ask it that way, I always kind of feel like, well, I haven't been through that ritual yet. But I mean, I'm hitting a, I'm I'm applying to a lot of jobs. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> yeah, I guess I'm on the job market. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I go to conferences and submit applications. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it, it's, it's not like there's some list of, you know, some centralized list of on-the-job market people. Right. Or where it's like, you're, you know, your Facebook status as an academic. Yeah. Well, on the job market. Interested. It's complicated. Whatever it is. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> whatever I can get. <laughs> whatever I can get. Exactly. Oh, man. But, um, so, we're, we're pretty much at the end of our at the end of our time here for uh, episode 10 of Mod Nerdery. But, um, so, next time you guys uh, hear from Rob, he will be Dr. Rob. Knock knock, uh, and then we'll 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 hear about what the defense was like. Oh boy, oh boy. Yep. Yeah. Also, I guess. Uh, well, maybe in that podcast we can talk about how the the whole PhD model and stuff like the dissertation defense is actually a holdover of like very pre-modern monastic institutions. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean that the PhD itself is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So. Until then, um, signing off, I am Peter Marino. Rob Ames, be seeing you. Take care.